everybody has a brand or they are invisible. Your brand is the story people tell themselves about you and the expectations they have of what you're gonna be like when you walk in the room. When it comes to creativity, marketing, business, speaking, writing, and how to interpret the world, few names are as influential as that of today's guest, Seth Godin. If you are a pizza lover and you think about the great pizza places in the United States, none of them are full service restaurants with big menus. You have to say, this is what I do. You can't say, and, 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 because then you have an excuse for everything being sort of average. An absolute giant in the book publishing and marketing worlds. He is quite literally in the Marketing Hall of Fame. Seth is the author of more than 19 international bestsellers. He's an entrepreneur, a speaker, a climate activist, and the solo contributor to his incredibly popular daily blog, which he's been writing every single day since 2005. But when asked, Seth considers himself primarily a teacher. Through his work, including books like Tribes, Purple Cow, Lynchpin, The Dip, and This Is Marketing, Seth seeks to turn people's lights on, inspire them into action, and teach them how to level up. And in this conversation, he certainly delivers on that endeavor. So I had 20 bestsellers in a row, and not one of them has sold to more than 1% of the U.S. population, which means that 99% of the U.S. population said, nah, not interested, no idea who you are, see ya. That's not failure, that's success. We discuss navigating creative blocks, the distinction between marketing and advertising. We talk about the pitfalls of modern education and his most recent book, The Carbon Almanac, which is designed to be a one-stop shop on everything we know, have known, and potentially will know about global climate change. The book uses cartoons, quotes, tables, illustrations, and articles to gather, display, and explain all the relevant facts on carbon's impact on our world as simply and as comprehensively as possible, all with an optimistic lens on the plausibility of positive change. And what we've been doing for 110 years is selling carbon-based energy way cheaper than we should. We forgot to count how much it really costs. I got a couple more things I would very much like to mention before we dig into this one. But first, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. 
from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, it was an absolute dream to have Seth in the studio. I've looked up to this man for a very long time and I think you're gonna be really inspired by our exchange. So this is me and the great Seth Godin. 
such an honor and a pleasure to have you here today. I've been looking forward to this for a very long time. And on the subject of too many things to talk about, this is the challenge with you, Mr. <laughs> Seth Godin, because you are truly such a polymath uh, and wise on so many topics. Uh, with this breadth of expertise that you know spans uh, a myriad of disciplines that it's very difficult to choose which thread to pull. And I have deemed this condition, this disease, polymath-induced podcast host paralysis. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, soon I to be in the DSM-4. To be clear, to be clear <laughs> I don't have that much expertise, but I'm good at asking questions about the way things work. I think that's a very humble answer because I do think that you are very wise across so many disciplines. And uh, I was reflecting on the drive over here today about the fact that, and I think this is a good way to launch in, that our email, I don't know if you remember this, but our email correspondence about trying to make this happen dates back many years uh, through a mutual friend, Matt Frazier, who introduced us many years ago. And you said, listen, when you're in New York, I'm happy to do the podcast, come up to my home in, in Hastings on Hudson, right? And I did not take you up on that offer. This is a, like a heuristic or a rule. Like if you really wanna have me on the <laughs> podcast, you will get on the train from Manhattan and come up. And uh, I did not do that. And the story that I've told myself about that, cause I've reflected back on that many times is that I was too busy. I had a packed schedule. I just couldn't afford the time. So I, I was rooted out in your rule, but that's not really the truth. I think the truth is that I was frightened by the prospect of meeting you. I was intimidated. You're somebody wow. I hold in such high regard and I did not feel up to the task. I was succumbing to insecurity and uh, perhaps a sense of, perfectionism paralysis that prevented me from rising to that challenge. I'm so sorry. That well, certainly wasn't my intent. I it's feel- It's all in my head. Well, but it's all in all of our heads and it's my loss because we could have had two podcasts instead of one. This is true. But I also believe that these things happen when they're meant to happen. And I now feel armed and ready <laughs> in okay. a way that maybe I didn't back then. But I think that that subject of, of feeling paralyzed or not feeling up to the task with respect to a creative expression very much falls in the, the, the focus of many of the things that, that you pontificate on so eloquently. So I don't know that that's a question, but perhaps it, it's definitely, a launching point. It's an epidemic. So I wanted, the, the story I wanted to start by telling you happened to me a couple of days ago. I was in San Clemente uh, seeing a friend and got up at six o'clock in the morning to go for a swim. And I almost drowned. Mm. I am a good swimmer, but I have never experienced uh, the current the way that I did. And it was this moment of, it doesn't matter whether I'm swimming with 10 people or no people, there's, not, there's nobody who's gonna help me but me. And this moment of this might be my last thing, what do I wanna, do right now. And it's, there's a lot of things left to be done. There's a lot of work left to be done, people to connect with, ideas to share. And I just took a deep breath and motored in barely. And I think it's worth talking about that because there's a huge difference between drowning off the coast of San Clemente and putting up a blog post that isn't perfect. 
Mm. or connecting with a customer or a friend in a way that you wish you could do it differently the next time. And yet we've been pushed to make everything a matter of life or death when there aren't that many things that are actually matters of life right. or death. So in that moment of clarity, when you felt death being visited upon you, you had this you know, sense that there was much left to do and to kind of get out of your own, your own way as yeah. somebody who's very good at getting out of their own way. It was extraordinary how quickly all the imposter syndrome stuff goes away. Cause mm. I, like I'm sitting there saying, well, I can't swim nearly as well as Rich, but it didn't matter. Cause I wasn't in a race with you. I was just trying to get back to shore. And in that moment, you become the best version of yourself, which is usually good enough. Yeah. On the, the topic of, of creative expression, um, the titans that come to mind are people like Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way, Stephen Pressfield, mm-hmm. Robert McKee, who I just had in here, who was a hoot. Um, now Rick Rubin, have you read his new I was book? the first person to read his Oh, book. you were. Yes, I, I, I got an early copy of it because I was doing an event with him, a Google event with him, a fireside uh, and read that book and was just deeply moved by that. I think it's you know soon to be as it is released into the world uh, among the great books on, on creative expression. And I would consider your work very much in that regard as well. And I would be remiss on a very selfish level to not you know, run a little bit of an experiment on my own creative blocks as somebody who is in the business of creative expression. Really the last real book that I wrote was in 2012. And there is an argument to be made that all of this, the beautiful studio and the podcast and all of it is a massive elaborate distraction (laughs) and and justification or rationalization for not getting up and writing every day. And this is my Mount Everest that I'm determined to conquer in the upcoming year. And I think what's interesting about it is that, you know, reflecting on my own boundaries as being somewhat porous and, and very much negotiable, I have a self-awareness around it. And I'm aware that these habits will not change without a system change. And yet, despite that self-awareness in the parlance of recovery, like self-awareness will avail you nothing. Mm-hmm. It's the action that, that, uh, that moves the needle. And in my experience, as somebody who's undergone you know, dramatic changes over the course of my life, those changes are generally motivated by pain when I feel backed into a corner and the pain of my current situation finally tips over and exceeds the fear of that change. Well, that last part's good. I wanna throw a monkey wrench in just a little bit, maybe for our listeners and not for you. I think Steve and I would agree on this. Just because there's resistance doesn't mean the thing you are feeling resistance about is important. And what you have been doing for the last 10 years is narrating a journey for millions of people. You haven't been hiding, working at a Baba tea shop. You have been showing up with a unique voice for people who need to hear it in a medium that didn't exist 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And just because books have been around for 500 years and there's a particular pain that comes from writing one because of the Proustian overhead that goes with it, doesn't mean that you will serve the people you seek to serve better by writing a book. Now, if it turns out that the conditions that you need to write a book will actually escalate your thinking in ways that can lead you to where you wanna go, then I'm all in and I would love to help you. But it could be that this is resistance 
bothering you, pretending to be resistant, saying you're a failure because you haven't written a book, go write a book. But that's actually keeping you from pioneering a new kind of Netflix talk mm-hmm. show or whatever it is that's gonna let you do your unique work. Mm-hmm. So I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a valid observation. I think that perhaps I hang my hat on this idea of where being a published author sits in the hierarchy mm-hmm. of influence. And there is something about that that I think is real. I think it's being challenged and fractured It's eroding a bit. really fast. Yeah, it's not what it used to be. But I do think that fundamentally, I feel like I am a writer and I haven't served that muse inside of me and Get I feel writing. that. So it's a, it's a function of like getting honest with myself and trying to dissect what are the externalities, those external kind of social pressures that I feel to live up to a certain standard versus what is the best use of my time and energy. And it is true that this podcast reaches more people than any book that I'm gonna write on a weekly basis. So from that perspective, there's no reason to write a book because I'm already communicating with more people if that is an important like variable in that equation. But books, as you know, with your love of books, stand the test of time. And there is something about that three-dimensional thing that exists in the world that I think is important and timeless and hopefully will remain so. Yeah. So thank you for teeing up first the discussion about the marathon, which is the difference between people who run 20 and 26 miles isn't physical condition. It is simply figuring out where to put the tired that the people who finish figure out where to put the tired and the people who don't, don't. Mm-hmm. Cause if you made it to 20, you could make it to 26. And you can't go to a trainer and say, please train me to run a marathon without getting tired. It's not an option. So if you're gonna do important work as a writer, you can't say, I wanna do important work as a writer, but not feel any of the feelings that come from doing important work. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the deal. That's why writing is worth doing. But that doesn't mean you have to do it the way Ernest Hemingway would do it. And there are lots of ways to create the conditions for you to have a place where the best work is evoked. And so I've coached a lot of friends to writing books, some of which have done very well. Mm -hmm. And the first rule is you can't become attached to the outcome. That publishing is a weird business. It's more of a hobby. And it has all these signals in it that don't make sense. Great books don't sell that well. Lousy books sell a lot of copies. Good people spend their lives promoting books. That's not what you need to do. So we're not gonna get attached to whether it's a bestseller. We're gonna get focused on, did this book be what I want it Mm -hmm. to be? But then the second part of it is getting really clear about who's it for and what's it for. Who exactly are we seeking to change? And if you're not clear about that, you're gonna write a mediocre book no matter what it is, but if you can visualize the emotional state, the fears, the dreams, the desires, of the person you're seeking to serve in the book, it becomes much more practical for you to be able to say, this works and this doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing comes from Isaac Asimov, who I used to work with when I was a kid and he was old. Uh, he invented the idea of robots. He was one of the most successful science fiction authors ever. And Isaac published 400 books in his lifetime. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I'm sitting in his apartment near Lincoln Center in New York. And I said, so Isaac, he, he had a pretty big ego. He liked when I said things like, 
You've written some of the most important books of all time and you've done 400 books. How did you do that? And he walks me over to this little tiny table with a manual typewriter on it. And he says, what I do is I wake up in the morning and I walk over to this typewriter and I type from 6.30 to noon every day. And it doesn't matter if it's good, I just have to type. And that thinking tricked his subconscious into typing good stuff because it feels really stupid to sit there and type Mm -hmm. bad stuff. And so what I say to people in the 2020s is, you don't need a manual typewriter, you need a recorder. And then you need to find a human being you wanna teach something to and go for a walk with them and record you for an hour telling them what they need to know. Mm. Then get it transcribed and start with that. Cause you can make that better, but that just did the hard part, right. which is you got the over blank the blank pages now off the table. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the idea of creating that non-negotiable and then lowering the stakes seems to be the path forward. But taking a step back from that, it's really all about boundaries and knowing how to say no mm-hmm. to protect your Correct. yes, right? Yep. And this is something I know that you've thought about deeply that you practice and you teach to so many people. So talk a little bit about you know, how you create those rules around the things that are important in your life. And then maybe as background to that, how did you figure out what was important to you? So um, if you are a pizza lover and you think about the great pizza places in the United States, none of them are full service restaurants with big menus. They make a thing and they make it the best they can make it because it must be done with care or it becomes mediocre. And we have created an entire generation of wandering generalities, as Zig would say, instead of meaningful specifics. And to be a meaningful specific, you have to say, this is what I do. You can't say, and, 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 because then you have an excuse for everything being sort of average. Mm-hmm. And if your slogan is, you can pick anyone and we're anyone, then someone else is gonna win. You wanna be in and of yourself, the one and only version of that. So I think that's a universal law. I think that if somebody is more focused than you, they're gonna put in more cycles than you and they're gonna learn more than you and inevitably they're gonna become better than you when you have enough competitors. Mm -hmm. So with that said, you gotta say, well, the only way that's gonna happen is if I say no to all sorts of attractive things. So in my case, as somebody who has a certain kind of willpower, it means no Twitter, no Instagram, no Facebook, no LinkedIn, almost no travel. There are all these things I don't do because I don't wanna reconsider every time because it would be a huge number of cycles to say, oh, look, that, but this one's really special. I should open the door and think about that one again. But is this a function of not wanting to fall into the kind of pleasure trap of scrolling or is it because you don't wanna be influenced by what other people are saying? I'm not, not only, I'm work? not reading them, but I'm also not writing on those platforms. So when Twitter came along, it was early days, I saw it, I said, I could probably have a lot of people following me on Twitter. Yeah. But if I got good at Twitter, I would have to become mediocre at blogging. So I don't wanna do that. I wanna be really good at the thing I do and not do the other thing. So that's part A. And yes, as you pointed out, listening to anonymous trolls makes nobody better. I've never met an author who said, I read all my one-star reviews on Amazon Mm -hmm. and now I'm a better writer. So 11 years ago, I stopped reading my reviews on Amazon. I haven't read a review once since that day, because I'm not gonna learn anything from a one-star review other than it wasn't for me. Well, you just told me about you, but you didn't tell me about my work. Mm -hmm. So I get it, it wasn't for you. 
but that's not what I need to learn to get better. I think many people fall into this illusion that whatever they're creating is for everybody and they don't have that clarity around who specifically they're writing for or creating for. And as a result, the work suffers, right? And this is something, this is a drum you've been beating, you know, from the beginning about, you know, all the way back to tribes, et cetera, about like having that definitive sense of who you're serving. And I think we're in an interesting time now because the internet has fractured the monoculture and everything is about tribes now. There mm-hmm. is, it's very unlikely that we're gonna see, you know, only rarely now do we see gigantic creative offerings that move the entire culture. Yes. And because of that, it's created opportunity for many people, but I feel like people still fall under the delusion that they need to be like Taylor Swift or George Lucas or somebody like that. Taylor Swift isn't like Taylor Swift. Yeah. This is, so I got interrupt you. of the fact that like, yeah. I, I got interrupt you. It, this is such an easy thing to describe and a hard thing to embrace. So about seven miles from here is a four mile trail where you can go in a state park into the woods and find out where they filmed MASH. Like mm-hmm. you're in the DMZ. It's my backyard trail. It's a real, I was yeah. there yesterday and I took pictures and sent them back to the family. And my wife's like, that's really cool. And the kid's like, what's this? So MASH was the most popular TV show ever broadcast when it went off the air. The last episode, 70 million plus people saw. So to compare 70 million people to a show like The Sopranos or Mad Men or whatever, which got seen by 3 million people when they were broadcast, right? One twentieth the number. Or if you think about anything that your friends, people in quotation marks are talking about on Netflix, a million, two million people are seeing it when it's first coming out. Taylor Swift would not make the Billboard top 500 if her music was compared to sales from the 1970s not even close Mm -hmm. that what it means to win on the long tail is you're just a tiny drip in a giant bucket and that's enough. So I had 20 bestsellers in a row and not one of them has sold to more than 1% of the US population, which means that 99% of the US population said, nah, not interested, no idea who you are, see ya. That's not failure, that's success. So writing for all these people who are never gonna engage with you, making a TV show or a podcast for everyone. No, don't, don't make Serial because Serial ends up being popular because something had to win that day's lottery, but it's probably not gonna be you. No, and it's very specific in what it is. Yeah. I, don't, I, I don't think anybody involved in that program anticipated the success nor were they making it for the purpose of impacting right. culture on a mass level. Right, but if you copy them and say, well, this is gonna be the next blank, you've lost why you're doing it. The thread, you're saying, someone's gonna win the lottery, it's gonna be me. And we see struggling people, struggling with income, tricked into buying lottery tickets for that very reason. And it's a dumb investment. And instead, put ourselves on the hook and say, no, I'm making this for, you know, the vegan community of Agora Hills, California. And if they don't like it, I have failed because it's for them and that's who it's for. So I put myself on the hook when I say that. Whereas if I say, I'm making the best thing I can and hopefully lots of people will like it. Well, then when a few people don't like it, you can just say, well, I'm waiting for the next people. I'm waiting for a lucky break. How Mm -hmm. do I hype this? And so putting yourself on the hook 
That's how you get funding for your project. That's how you hire people. That's how you get a job. Be specific, not this average mediocre generalist. Right, and, and backing into that, talk a little bit about how you made these decisions for yourself about how you wanted to invest your time and, and kind of defining for yourself what was important to you. So um, I failed a lot when I was getting started, 10 years in a row, pretty much. I got 800 rejection letters in a row from the book publishing community after I sold my first book. Chip Conley was co-author in 1986. Yeah, I wanna get into the Chip Conley, Seth Godin, Algonquin table and, back in the anthropology department. <laughs> and, and so Chip and I sold the first one the first day. I was like, oh, I get it. I'll just make books that everyone wants to buy and, mm-hmm. and publishers will publish them. And what I discovered was that the market was smarter than me. And it was saying to me, we get that you have ideas about what book would sell if it was at the cash register at Barnes and Noble, but we can't make a book get to the cash register at Barnes and Noble through will, it's luck. So why don't you make something specific? And that pushed me on this path of realizing that every time I got deep with things and it wasn't always the same thing from my team, there were 10 of us, Mm -hmm. but you know, we did the Stanley Kaplan SAT prep books, not sort of average SAT prep books. We did novels based on Nintendo games, the best Nintendo games, not something we could do easily or conveniently. And that cycle got it started. And then I started one of the very first internet companies. Mm -hmm. And what was going on in the internet in the nineties was think about how we spend our time today and imagine that none of those companies existed. So there was this huge race because it was a buffet for a few of us who understood what was happening. And if you put too much on your plate, it all fell off. Mm -hmm. And the people who figured it out, put one thing on their plate and won that thing. So I understood strategically what was going on, but then the personal challenge was, I don't, as an entrepreneur, like getting too close to, I'm gonna have to give this up and go get a job as a bank teller. So conservative about the size of the risks I was taking but also I have mild ADD and I, oh, look, a puppy. I'm mildly distracted by shiny objects. And I realized if I didn't put up blinders, I'd be racing from one thing to the other. Uh So those were the two reasons that got me disciplined. But within that, there's this journey. I mean, you're at Stanford Business School, you're iterating on all these business ideas. You, from there, become a serial entrepreneur. You have an exit and you get into book publishing, et cetera. But at some point you decide, I'm gonna be a writer. Along the way, you learn all these skills, these you know relevant principles around business and culture. And there must've been an impulse to share them was that a function of being in the book publishing industry and saying, actually, I could write better books than this? Or where did the writer impulse you know, come up and, and make its voice heard for you? All right, so when I was a book packager, I did 120 books. Some of them- What I, is a book packager? I don't even know that if I know question. what that is. It's like being a movie producer. You create the conditions for a book to exist. Most books don't need one. Almanacs need one, encyclopedias need one, uh, photo books need one because it's a production. And sometimes I wrote them, sometimes I didn't. Usually I hired other people to write them, but I wasn't a writer with a capital W. I would go to meetings and the editors would treat me with much less respect because they like writers. They didn't like people who did what I did. Mm-hmm. And when I was building the internet company, Yo-Yo Dine, it was taking us six to nine months to close the sale because it was 
complicated in those days to explain what permission marketing was, what email marketing was. It's like, hey, I know how to make books. So I'll write a book about this and we could just give the book to people, which would give credibility. Uh And if they read the book, the sales cycle would, so it was totally a mercenary thing to say, this would pay off for our company. But between the time I wrote it and the time it came out, we sold the company to Yahoo. And yet this book came out and it became a New York Times bestseller. And around that time, some things happened in my personal life. My mom got really sick. Uh, I left Yahoo, I moved back to New York and I sat in a dark room by myself for nine months, not with no job, with why bother writing another book? My real book worked, Mm -hmm. I can't sell more copies than that. And then this guy who almost no one had heard of named Malcolm Gladwell sent me the galleys of a book called The Tipping Point. And he asked me to blurb the back of it. And I read it in an hour and I sent him a blurb right away. And in the next two weeks, I wrote an entire book because clearly I had been thinking about it, but Uh had been denying resistance doing it because I didn't wanna be an author, I thought. But Malcolm's book opened that spigot for me because I saw that he was committing a generous act in the way he was describing what he was seeing. That's so interesting because I do think of you in, in, in similar terms as people who have a keen observational ability when it comes to seeing trends from a macro perspective, culturally, business, et cetera, and have kind of, you know, not necessarily contrarian, but kind of orthogonal perspectives. We were talking before the podcast about your ideas about how to, you know, uh, reframe the Olympics, et cetera. I mean, these are all, you know, these, these are, there is a shared kind of kindred sensibility there. Yeah, yeah, there is. And I'm always flattered if someone compares me to Malcolm, except when it comes to hairstyles, because <laughs> I used to have hair like Well, he's his. the champion. I used I to mean, have hair just like his, <laughs> but it all fell out. Yeah. Anyway, so I was nervous because mm. my book was gonna come out before his, and it had been inspired by the idea that Tim, so I sent it to him and I said, if you don't think I should publish this, I won't. But if you like it, I appreciate any kind. And he actually volunteered and wrote the foreword for it, Mm. which he doesn't do anymore, Mm -hmm. but that was back in the day. And the book was about how ideas spread. So I put the book online for free and I just needed to get it off my desk. I didn't, I had been using books as a tool my whole career I love books, but I didn't, wasn't an author in the sense of I'm willing to slave in obscurity to put my stuff down. They were a tool. They were what I did for a living. And this book, I wasn't gonna make a penny from. I just wanted to share this idea because it was so timely and it took off. It got downloaded millions of times, the most popular book of all time at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, well, we should make a hard copy because people hate reading it on the screens in you know, 1990, whatever. 2000. So we quickly made a hardcover and it became a really big bestseller. I was like, now I'm an author because now I've done it twice in a row. And not only that, I'm not sitting in a dark room by myself anymore. This, this cycle of think hard, write hard. And a year later, your event publishing event will happen and then you can do it again. Mm -hmm. I can do that. And I can do that with the sense of confidence and generosity. Right. That is partly because I understand the industry partly because I know how to write, even though I didn't used to know how to write, I taught myself. And partly because I think I can see systems in a way that people would appreciate. Yeah. And so that's what made me a writer. What is the meaning of life? 
What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most, mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So today, when somebody says to you, oh, they don't know you, they've just met you, and they say, what do you do? Do you answer that you're a writer or how do you, like, what do you write on forms where they say <laughs> occupation? <laughs> so full credit to my friend, Clay Hebert. Um, he has a great 10 minute talk about the elevator pitch, but my rejoinder is no one ever bought anything on an elevator. And if you're busy doing an elevator pitch, it's probably way of hiding. Mm -hmm. I think elevator questions are better because what you want is people to follow you out of the elevator and keep talking to you. And so when people ask me what I do, uh, I now say I'm a teacher because I do it in enough media that I don't think of myself as just an author. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, I've always had a lot of insecurity about picking that genre because imposter syndrome instantly follows. So as somebody who you know, is known as a, a, a genius of marketing, you're in the marketing hall of fame, how does marketing play into how you think about what you do and how you kind of ship your creative work to use your vernacular? Do you think about like the brand of Seth Godin and the promise and the trust that you're building with the community of people that care about what you do? Okay, so small sidebar for people who haven't listened to me for 400 hours before. Marketing isn't advertising, marketing isn't hype. Marketing isn't hustling people. No one wants to be hustled. It used to be all of those things. In 1965, advertising and marketing were the same thing. I, I'm not sure I understand the difference. Well, advertising is using money to interrupt people. So you make enough money so you can do it again. And in the age of mass marketing, average stuff promoted a lot will always outsell 
average stuff that's not promoted a lot. So Skippy peanut butter and Heinz ketchup and go down the list. Those are intentionally built to be average. They respond well to advertising. But the internet, like all things, it blows it up. And it says, name any brand you care about and trust these days, their ad budget's either non-existent or tiny, right? When was the last time you saw an ad with a jingle for Google? Mm -hmm. Google doesn't have a jingle, they don't need a jingle. So it has been replaced by the story we tell to the people we seek to serve so that the story is resonant and they will tell the others. If you can do that, then you have done a good job of marketing. And so if we think about how do you go about marketing a Toyota Prius? Well, first thing is make sure it doesn't look like a Toyota Corolla because if it looked just like a Corolla as they were driving around the neighborhood, no one would notice them. But if you have a car 10 years ago that looks a little bit like a weird spaceship, your neighbors, you know, and so you start mm. to understand status roles and affiliation and dominance and subcultures and tribes and all of these things are what marketing actually is. The story we tell that creates tension so that people will move forward. That's great marketing. So or a story think, that's being told that invites and attracts people who like that story and would like part of that story to be their own story. Correct. It starts to create identity, which is about affiliation, or either you're an insider or you're an outsider. Culture is right next to marketing. So I've been a marketer my whole life and everybody who has been successful at making any sort of change has likely been a marketer if they're dealing with voluntary interaction, right? So if you want soccer to be more popular than basketball in a country, you need to make marketing decisions that have nothing to do with whether you're putting up billboards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't understand this. They think they just need to get some more money together to put up some more billboards, which used to be true, but it's not true anymore. And so when we, if you, you know, if you drive down uh, through Hollywood, you see all these billboards for not very good TV shows that aren't gonna resonate with people. That's because someone at Netflix or Hulu is making bad marketing choices about what shows to make and who to put in them, not bad marketing decisions about billboard placement. Mm -hmm. So with all that said, everybody has a brand or they are invisible. Your brand is not your logo, though your logo is very cool. Your brand is the story people tell themselves about you and the expectations they have of what you're gonna be like when you walk in the room. That's your brand. And if you start becoming inconsistent, your brand will inevitably become inconsistent and fade away. So General Motors doesn't have much of a brand because we don't know what to expect the next time General Motors tells us they're gonna make a car. Whereas McLaren has a brand, no ads, but they have a brand. Because if I said I got a new car from McLaren, you would have a hunch sure. as to what I spent on it and what it would mean about me identity wise, mm -hmm. which is why I have to take great pains to say I don't have a McLaren, <laughs> right? So- I would be very surprised. Exactly, because yeah. that's what a brand is. So in my case, there are definitely times when I would like to act authentically in the moment and I don't because authenticity is overrated. Your customers don't want you to be authentic. Your podcast listeners don't want you to be authentic. They want you to be the best version of you that you promised them. That there are certain professions like rock star where you get points for having a meltdown on stage and dying of an overdose because that's authentic. But in most other fields, 
If you go to see a doctor for a checkup, you don't care that the doctor's having a bad day. You just want her to be the best version of that doctor that she is capable of being today Mm -hmm. because that's what you bought. And so, you know, when you see somebody having a tantrum dealing with a customer service person, that's, you know, unacceptable. It is a a, a version of status roles that I don't approve of. But also if that person who was having the tantrum was someone you knew, their brand would change in your mind. Sure. All right, well, a couple observations on that. First of all, you know, I do feel like this innate allergy to the idea that like I'm a brand, like I I, Mm -hmm. I, I really struggle with that. Mm -hmm. I understand intellectually the importance of thinking about this in a professional context and the role that brand plays in that, but it's it it just strikes me as distasteful, and perhaps that's because you don't have to like it. The it's whole still true. economy of you know what's going on on the internet right now, um, and then and then second to that, I, I would push back a little bit on, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this on the authenticity piece because I do feel like authenticity is an aspect of what I am communicating and advocating through the work that I do, because I feel like most people are, are so far shy of being authentic to who they are. And I have to model that. I don't have to, I choose to model that in a, in a way that's perhaps a little bit more vulnerable than somebody else who does what I do to create that permissiveness for the audience. Now, I calibrate that. I'm not gonna come in and, you know, like I, I'm choosing those moments, not, not in a negative context of strategy, but you know, there's, there's, there is too much vulnerability and too much authenticity, I would grant you that. So it's a spectrum, we're not disagreeing, that we have no problem with the fact that Alana Glazer plays a role when she's on television. We're not looking for the authentic Alana Glazer, we're looking for a broad city Alana Glazer, mm-hmm. or Jerry Seinfeld or George Costanza, whatever you want, right? And all the way at the other extreme, we want our spouse to talk to us like the authentic human being that they are. So everywhere in between is a spectrum. If we get pulled over for a traffic ticket, we don't want the cop to punch us in the nose just because they can and they're having a bad day. Not okay, it would be authentic, but not okay. The last time we were fully authentic, we were a year old and we had poop in our diapers. Ever since then, we've been calculating, we've been trading, we've been saying, I know I could blurt something out right now, but I'm gonna hold back for just 10 seconds because it's worth it. And what I'm just trying to say to people is I don't wanna let you off the hook for your bad behavior just because you say, well, I'm being authentic because right. I don't think it's a legitimate excuse. Yeah, yeah. I, if you I, wanna I'm, stand I'm for something, that. stand for something. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Right, I got you. So. For the average person who's listening to this or or watching this, like why should they care about brand? Should they think about brand in the context of their own lives or how can understanding uh, brand or marketing be, you know, something that, you know, should garner their attention? So how do you get into college, right? College is a sweepstakes, college isn't fair. Only 20% of the qualified people get into any famous college. If you just say, here's everything there is about me. Now you know me as well as I do, please pick me. A, they're not gonna spend the time it's gonna take to learn everything about you. And B, it's probably not gonna work. On the other hand, you can choose by which activities you narrate, by which behaviors you highlight, what you will be seen in the four minutes they're choosing to pick you or not. Uh Same things when you're applying for a job. A resume isn't you, a resume is 
the things you selected to show somebody that you can honestly persist in doing consistently so that you can get to the next step. And the same thing is true in all the people we connect with online and all the people we work with. We get to pick what story people tell about us when we show up. My blog post today is about writing your own autobiography. So the autobiography, the biography of Robert Moses is a 66 hour long audio book. Mm-hmm. I strongly recommend it so you can listen to it at fast speed. So here's this guy who lived for 90 years and it took only 66 hours to tell us about his life, which means you have to leave out all of it except a little tiny bit. Which part are you gonna talk about, right? You're gonna talk about that evening, he, his daughter had a fever and he went to the drugstore for her? No, because it doesn't add to the narrative. So what I'm saying is, you probably will benefit from writing your own narrative and living it because people are gonna judge you one way or the other. You should be judged the way you wanna be judged. There's this story that we wanna tell others about who we are and how we show up in the world and present ourselves mm-hmm. so that we can you know, succeed or make our way in the world in, in the manner of our aspirations. And then there's the stories we quietly tell ourselves Bingo. about who we are and what we're capable of. Yes. And, and those are really, the, that really dictates outcomes, you know, in, yes. in, the, in the largest way. And this is the ultimate hamstring for most people, myself included. And this is what your next book is about. Tell me more. This is what we need you to teach us. What do we say when we talk to ourselves? Who is more qualified to talk about that than you? And I don't well, maybe know. You. Well, maybe you, maybe you. <laughs> nah, no, because yeah. I don't know how to talk to myself in a way that would increase my performance in ways that are outside of my comfort zone the way that you do. And I think that you can start with physical performance because it's easier to measure but it's all of the same thing, which is you don't need more time. You don't need more information. You need to tell yourself a different story and rebooting the story we tell ourselves is really challenging. There are lots of hacks for it, but conceptually just acknowledging it's possible is super important. And Pressfield's work goes into this without naming it, Mm -hmm. but War of Art and the new book are just all about by acting differently you will start to tell yourself a different story. Yeah, so it's the action that changes the story, but the action is the result of a decision Correct. that has to be made. Correct. And that decision is a stumbling block because on some level, whatever story it is that we're telling ourselves about who we are and our capacity, even if it's incredibly negative and, and most people's stories are, First, it's acknowledging that it's an illusion, Mm -hmm. but even more primary to that is understanding that even though it's not serving you, it is serving you. There's a reason why you're holding on to it. There's a comfort with it. Correct. Um, It's a a way of staying safe and small. So you're not putting yourself on the line. And even if it's obvious to everyone else and to the person themselves, it still is a Herculean task to grapple with that and ultimately transcend it. Correct. And we've been indoctrinated intentionally by cultural forces since the day we were born to have this story be told to ourselves. Mm -hmm. That industrialists invented it so that we would show up at work. Right, and this opens up the whole conversation around education 
uh, which was you know constructed from an industrialist perspective to you know create compliant workers and to sort of lure us into a web of of easy coercion, mm-hmm. right? And, and you have a lot of ideas about what's wrong with education <laughs> and how it should be changed. And when you name it, <laughs> when you name it, it's already making people uncomfortable. Yeah, they don't want to believe that. It feels like something that your loving parents put you into at the beginning that you've been doing your whole life must be a natural law. It must be correct. And if it is working for you, no problem, no harm, no foul. But what we are seeing with a new generation coming up with the climate, with everything else is it's not working for us. And we are not gonna be able to standardize, test our way out of this. And understanding that well-meaning people were part of a system of indoctrination helps you realize what clothes the emperor is wearing and what to do about it for yourself and for your kids. So what is the path forward? If you were, you woke up tomorrow and you had been, um, you found yourself as the secretary of education or some other, you're in the seat of power to you know, make these changes or you were the provost of sure. Harvard or whatnot, like what would you do? Well, neither of those people has any power. We have a systems problem. There are people who are opening schools that address it, but most parents don't wanna send their kids there because it's systemic. And I think we should be teaching kids two or three things, how to lead, how to solve interesting problems and probably how to be a good citizen. Mm -hmm. How to lead is different than how to manage. How to lead is wayfinding, pathfinding and encouraging people to follow you, even though they don't have to. And solving interesting problems is the opposite of looking them up in Wikipedia. We don't need anyone to know what four times seven is because we can just look it up. What we need is for people to say, oh, this is a thorny intersection of human problems, technical problems in a situation. I wonder if there's a way I can decode this. We spend one minute a year helping eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it extends really dramatically into sports and school, which seems to be about solving a trophy shortage, not about helping kids lead and solve interesting right. problems. That was part of the Malcolm discussion that I had. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Exactly. And so when we add it all up, what we're doing is creating people who are willing to be compliant cogs in an industrial system. And guess what? The industrial system is falling apart. So now we have all these people who say, I did what I was supposed to do. Where is my American dream? Mm-hmm. And we have to say to them, well, actually what we need you to do is be more insightful than an artificial intelligence system and be more flexible than somebody I could hire for half the price who's remote. If you can't do those two things, I don't need you. But we never taught them how to do either. Right, after 20 years of indoctrination in following the rules and being a a good studious individual, you become inured to following rules. And what we need now are people who look at the rules and deconstruct them. And that's just not part of the curriculum. Right, and they're not even looking, like if you have a fever, you realize you have a fever, you try to, find some Tylenol. In this case, people don't even know that this system exists and that it's the problem. And so part of my work on education has been just highlighting it, just saying, look what just happened in this classroom right here. Is that what we want to do tomorrow? And if not, how are we gonna start undoing it? And there's a lot of interesting work getting done in unschooling, in peer-to-peer schooling, where if you say to a seven-year-old, teach this five-year-old five things, they probably can. Mm -hmm. And 
the seven-year-old grows, the five-year-old grows, and a cycle is created that's different. Lenny Levine, the great kindergarten teacher uh, who had such an impact on my family, he said to the parents, the only purpose of his kindergarten class for nine months is you can't say you can't play. He said, your kids are all gonna learn how to read. But if I can teach them the expression, you can't say you can't play, meaning if someone wants to join the circle, they can join the circle. If someone needs your help, they get your help. If someone needs leadership, you lead. If I can teach them that, everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, but it's scary from a parental mm-hmm. perspective because the system and all the external pressures that are Correct. built into complying and adhering to that system make it very threatening and scary for any parent to say, we're gonna opt out of that and do this when everyone else is doing it in the traditional way because nobody wants to lead their child astray. Everybody wants the best for their kid. And it's very easy to say, well, everyone else is doing this, it must be fine. We're gonna take this risk and do this. What if it doesn't work out? Right, back to being on the hook, right? That most, most, suburban parents would like to be on the hook for a sticker on the back of their car 10 years from now, not on the hook to answer for why their kid didn't do well on the SATs. Right, and the sticker is about the parents. Correct, the sticker is about the parents. And then we say to a 17 year old, please make a decision about going a quarter of a million dollars in debt and base it on whether or not their stadium makes you happy. Sure, and not for nothing when you're 17, you need to know what you're gonna spend the rest of your life doing, Yeah, which is total insanity. Right. but. <laughs> All of these things have evolved in our lifetime mm-hmm. because the system rewards them. And the more I think about systems change, the more clear it becomes to me that the system and the status quo remain because they're good at remaining, that there's a self-fulfilling thing going on, that systems that didn't work disappear and that systems that are good at hanging on, hang on. And so we built all of this insulation around the industrial system, the education system, the carbon system, so that they would stick around. And the only way to get rid of them is not for the emperor or the person at the top to slice them open because that never happens. It's when the grassroots says, we're not gonna deal with this anymore. Right, you need that grassroots, but at the same time, part of the intractability of that problem is that the architecture of system stability, like the the engine behind it are the incentives, right? And you can't change the system without changing the incentives. Correct. And most of the incentives in our society are not only holding broken systems in place, they're incredibly difficult to change. And, and those can't necessarily change at a grassroots level. It has to be from the top down as well. Well, so let's think of a couple like of- if you look at farm subsidies or you know, any, right. pick, you know, pick your But poison. those might be the last domino. So let's just pick a couple of trivial Campaign examples. finance. One trivial example is no one wears a suit to work anymore. Like no one meaning 95% of the people. When I was born, every person who worked in an office wore a suit. That didn't take that long. What happened? Well, it started because uh, Levi's and the Gap figured out they could make a profit by flipping one day of the week. And then it shifted because certain kinds of knowledge workers used software in a way that created so much value, they got to announce what they were doing and a different class of knowledge worker came along who wasn't Mm -hmm. an investment and on and on. And so bit by bit, it starts to fall apart or a pandemic shows up, which is a crisis and Zoom is ready for it. The technology is present. And all of a sudden, 
we're dismantling one of the biggest systems in the history of the world, right? Commercial real estate. You don't have to go to work, so you don't wanna go to work, so you can work from home. Well, that means that there are giant skyscrapers in New York City that used to be worth a billion dollars that are empty right now. Mm-hmm. And maybe they'll never have people in them again. That there are forces that want people to come back, but people have enough power. So bit by bit, systems start to change. So there's usually a disruption, a crisis, a technological innovation, some sort of cultural shift that causes these things to happen, right? In the case of music, we got rock music because the transistor radio came with headphones. And before that, everyone in the family listened to music together. And it's headphones that permitted teenagers to listen to music their parents hated. And so we had to invent music that parents would hate so that teenagers could act out and the headphones were the tool that changed the entire music industry. And then go fast forward 30 years, MTV is doing its thing, but then rap music shows up and there's another way forward. And our friend Rick Rubin walks right into that and begins to change just a little tiny corner, Mm -hmm. which gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then radio falls apart. So then the billboard charts don't matter anymore. And so yeah, systems change in surprising ways, but usually because a bunch of people can outline how and why it should change. Yeah, there's something placating about that also though, because it's reliant upon some kind of technological innovation or it's about some outlier creative Mm -hmm. who expresses themselves in a certain way that shifts culture, which can create paralysis for that grassroots movement. It could, but I think there's plenty of if we talk about technology, the thing that's gonna change education is for example, every course at MIT is online for free. Right, but here's the thing, the pandemic presented an unbelievable opportunity for that seismic shift. We saw it in the workplace, we really didn't see it in education. It snapped back to where it was. Uh, Scott Galloway talks about this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Here was this massive opportunity where these institutions of higher learning could have broadened their enrollment and created tiers of education experience for people as public servants. But these brands are so powerful, it's back to brand, right? Like Harvard, Stanford, whatever, they have to protect their brand and that brand is built upon exclusivity and limiting enrollment. We know they're sitting on ridiculous endowments. Scott and I I agree about a lot of this, but I don't agree that it is ever gonna be led by Harvard or Yale. What's already happening is a self-taught computer programmer who uses Stack Overflow for two hours, mm-hmm. two hours a day for two years can go get a six-figure job. Sure, and this is this is happening right now. It's it's it's, it's the, all going to unravel. It's the reemergence of and the and the um, respect for trade. Correct. And the other thing that's going to happen, which is already happening, is third-tier colleges are going to go bankrupt. They're going to go bankrupt all of a sudden and widespread because they don't have big endowments and people aren't gonna be willing to go in debt for the rest of their life Mm -hmm. to get a second or third rate degree that isn't worth anything. So once that happens, then you have this cratering underneath and all of a sudden people are gonna start, like I just got a note today, applications at the top five business schools of all the famous ones are down between 15 and 25% this Mm -hmm. year. In one year. That's Crazy. But not surprising because a whole bunch of people are saying, I don't wanna become an industrial middle manager. Right. I don't need to go to Wharton. 
I'm gonna go do a thing with the $100,000 I saved. And the status of that degree can drop really fast as soon as the people who are gauging the status don't care about it anymore. I wonder if there is a downside to that in that what we need is, you know, people who are excited about things like STEM. And instead we have a generation of young people who would rather try to be a Kardashian or a TikTok influencer. There's so many down. And feeling like they could yeah. you know, make a ton of money overnight, the easy way. No, thank you the for highlighting that. And the creativity and the hard work that is part and parcel of becoming good at anything. Oh, the, the, the downsides of this shift are huge. I'm not a Pollyanna about it, they're huge. And anti-intellectualism is a problem as well as anti-smart is a problem. And Harvard is going to have to respond or react and they have enough money to do it. They're just never gonna go first. Mm-hmm. And you know the idea that you're gonna make it as an influencer is fundamentally absurd, you're not, just do the math. And having a skill that creates value is a no brainer. The thing is, can you get the skill without the piece of paper? And the online workshops that I built, I don't run them anymore. Um, that's what we set out Certainly to do. Certainly you can do that. We can prove it. Now right? more than ever. Yeah, and so as soon as the value of the paper goes down, but the skill goes up, someone's gonna step into that gap and say, here's how we're gonna accredit skills as opposed to accredit scarcity. So this is all happening, not right. fast enough, but you just need to see it first. As somebody who has such keen observational skills and, and has your finger on the pulse of, of the macro and can kind of see the forest for the trees um, and, and your, your understanding around like how ideas spread, I'm interested in your perspective around what has transpired culturally over the last few years with respect to the nature of public discourse, the increase of siloization, the death of nuance, the obfuscation of truth, the ascent of the conspiracy, all of that. Like it's very trepidatious terrain right now. Yes, it is. So how, how are you making sense of this? Okay, so I, there are a couple of things that are worth noting. Uh, the first one is, Back at the dawn of the internet, I was a techno optimist. Give everybody a microphone. Things get better when you get rid of gatekeepers and we will see a flourishing like we've never seen before. And and let me just put a pin in that for a moment. When you say the birth of the internet, you're talking about like 1976, right? You're talking about ARPANET. 76 is when I got my my first email in 76. No, I'm talking about the the dawn of Prodigy. I had Prodigy's most popular Mm -hmm. product in 1989. Right? So we were sitting in rooms saying, this is clearly gonna get bigger. And what will happen when it gets bigger? What we fail to take into account is some people want to be a troll. That there is satisfaction for some people in being a contrarian. That's number one. And number two is fights sell tickets. And that's always been true. When you combine those two things, what we see is that media channels, which also have influence over technology Mm -hmm. because Facebook is a media channel and a technology, have an incentive to amplify trolls. And so what you end up with is people who make money from division. And then you have people who would like to seek political power who make money from division. And a a cycle, a non-virtuous cycle that just keeps going in that direction over and over and over again, making it feel like 
things are far more divided and atomized than they ever were before. When in fact, what we've really done is just put microphones in front of people who already were angry and felt left out, but we couldn't hear them. And what happens is if you turn down the volume of these people who would seek to make us feel uncomfortable so that we will go back just to make sure everything's okay, you realize that an enormous amount of progress has been made in an enormous amount of areas, that the percentage of the truly poor on earth percentage wise, smallest it's ever been, there's still way too many people, mm -hmm. that the ability that we have to know things, to connect to things, to learn things, never before have we seen this. So what we've got to figure out now how to do is change the incentives for media and politicians so that they don't make a living by making things worse. And we've been through this before. In uh, the early 1960s when I was born, the single best way to gain power in the Soviet Union or the United States was to threaten to blow up the planet. And we were 10 minutes away from the entire planet being blown up in one hour. We figured out how to calm that down because we know how much is at stake. Until like last week, but go ahead. So many things, right? And so I think we got to figure out what to do about breaking news because no one needs breaking news. We got to figure out what to do about people who are day trading their emotions, trying to figure out if everything's going to be okay. And the last part of my rant is the baby boomers have always made it about the baby boomers. In the 70s, when they were getting drafted, it was all about the draft. In the 80s, when it was about you know dad rock and, and music, it was all about that. Well, the baby boomers are all dying now. And you know, I'm one of the youngest ones and I'm in my 60s. So all of a sudden it's all about the end times. It's all about, this is all over. And guess what? 90% of the world is in a baby boomer. And so we're gonna interesting, see this idea of boomers happen. making it all about themselves. We've controlled the yeah. media since 1972. Right. Not so much anymore. It's shifting. Yeah. Yeah. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries, all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. There is this situation in which we have the denigration of trust in institutions, right? With media, politicians, corporations, et cetera. 
And, and also we don't agree upon a shared set of facts about what's real and what isn't, which is an even larger kind of more macro problem. And the siloization is separating ourselves mm -hmm. and gamifying the discourse such that it's about being right or it's about signaling to your in-group that you are a member in good standing as opposed to grappling with the nuance of reality and trying to make sense of it. And this I see as you know the great existential crisis of our time is the climate and I promise we're gonna get to this, but you know this is another great threat to our ability to problem solve. How can we solve the climate problem if we can't agree on reality? Okay, so again, part of this is amplified by people who make a living amplifying it but we've never agreed about reality. 10 years ago, 80% of the people in the United States said they believed in angels, that angels were real. And what's always been true is that human beings have emotions and feelings and stories. And science, which is only a couple hundred years old, has come along and shown us replicatable, falsifiable theories that we can say this is reality your emotions are your emotions and there's a gap between them. And that gap widens and narrows over time. But people, including me, believe lots of things that aren't true. What you're highlighting, I think, is that you can sell a lot of papers and raise a lot of money by pointing out that the other team refuses to acknowledge reality and that mm -hmm. our reality is right. What really is being said is we have feelings. We have feelings about winning and losing feelings about status, feelings about affiliation, feelings about being in something. And we will find facts in quotation marks to prove that our feelings are correct. Because people don't like to acknowledge that their feelings are not correct. So small aside, uh, I used to get upper respiratory colds because I traveled so much. And I walk into a health food store in a strange town and I say to the person behind the counter, I got a bad cold, do you have any placebos? And <laughs> She says, I don't know if they've come in yet. And she calls to the back to the manager, do we have any placebos? And they did not want to admit that they sold placebos. That if you wanna have a fight with an acupuncturist or a chiropractor, just point out that they have a very effective low uh, side effect placebo. Thank you for making that. They mm -hmm. will insist that what they do is real and factually based. So. Our stories are our stories. We just have to make sure they don't hurt other people. Our stories are our, our stories and we have to make sure they don't hurt other people. I, I'm not convinced that people care about whether their stories hurt other people or not. Not enough, yeah. they don't care enough. That's our work. Not to prove that they are wrong, but to create a civil society where you can have your feelings, but we have to have a civil society that works for all of us. And there's certain things that you just, don't do, can't do, because if we do them, regardless of our story or our feelings, the civil society itself doesn't work. That's what mm -hmm. scares me. Right, and I, I would argue that it's already not working on some level. Of course because not. Because of that. It has never worked perfectly, but yes, in recent times, it's very troubling about things that will happen in our civil society that are based on the amplification of stories and division by people who make a profit doing it. Right. We need to see that, we need to name it. And I don't think it matters which side of any given story you're on, you should be able to say that sentence 
in a uh, clear way and acknowledge that it's concrete. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a segue into the climate issues that I wanna talk to you about. Solving these problems does require consensus. And this book, The Carbon Almanac, is an effort to create consensus based upon scientific research and evidence-based reality, right? Um, this is your 20th book, 20th? It, there are 20 bestsellers, this is, 20, this is 21, but there. this is okay. not my book, it's our book. And what's interesting about it is that on some level, you can make the argument that it is very much a departure from your other books, which are about marketing and business and creativity and expression, et cetera. But there's another argument that it is very much a piece with mm -hmm. your other work, certainly in the kind of beautiful artistic presentation of it, but talk a little bit about how it fits in thematically with as a, as a kind of extension of the work that you've always been doing. So uh, the earth is gonna be fine. That's not the question. The question is whether people living on the earth will be fine. And whenever we talk about the future, what we're doing is telling a story. And the problem with the last 40 years of talking about the climate is that people who have been telling a story haven't been doing a very good job of it. And they've been uh, waylaid and manipulated by the people who dig things out of the ground or want certain political structures to stay the way they are. But the fact is the first thing most people say who know what they're talking about, when you talk about the climate is they say it's complicated and it's inconvenient. That was even the name of the movie. Mm -hmm. And when you say to people it's complicated, their eyes begin to glaze over. And when you say, and it's inconvenient, they walk away. On top of that, it's easy to feel stupid because no matter how much you know, somebody knows more than you. So it became hard to talk about. If you can't talk about it, you can't make it better. So the purpose of this project is, I wrote my first blog post about the climate 16 years ago, didn't solve the problem. And I haven't written too many other posts in the 15 years in between, because I didn't feel smart, I felt stupid. I felt like whatever I was gonna write, people were gonna say, you don't know enough. And I said, well, if that's true for me, it's probably true for other people too. And I used to make almanacs when I was a book packager. I knew how to make an almanac. I could have made the whole thing myself if I had spent five years on it, but I wanted to model systems change. How do we do something together? And so 300 people, 40 countries, every single page is footnoted with live links on our website. We correct errors in real time. We haven't corrected any that matter. And we're all volunteers, including me. And it became a bestseller in US and the Netherlands and Italy and just came out in China. But here's the thing that people should take away. Let's say it's 1642 and you're a James Bond villain and you wanna kill all the whales. The way you would do it is by putting space lasers on satellites and shooting the whales from space. The problem is there are no satellites and there are no space lasers. So you know what you could do instead? You could teach five people that whale oil is a really good way to light your house. And if you did that, the idea would spread and then there would be whale oil refineries and people who made the lanterns and people who built the boats and people who wanted the whales and people who made a living building a system in which the input was whales. And the only reason there are whales left is not because people said, please, please, please stop hunting whales. The only reason there are whales left is because someone invented kerosene and then the system changed and we have a systems problem. And this is what I learned in working on this project. I learned a lot about human nature, about the amazing people I did this with around the world. 
But the system's problem is simple. 110 years ago, there was a gusher called Spindletop. And a couple of years before that, they found oil in Pennsylvania. And those two things created the modern world. Cheap energy from the ground for anybody who wants to dig it up. And what we've been doing for 110 years is selling carbon-based energy way cheaper than we should. Mm-hmm. We forgot to count how much it really costs. And so everything in the system around us is based on cheap energy that's underpriced. And as long as the system is based on convenience and price and the, all the other things we built around it, we can't solve this problem by just saying, I'm composting in my backyard. Yeah. We need to change the system. A couple observations. It really does model the addiction paradigm on some level. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of flipped to say we're addicted to cheap energy, but truly we are. And what's interesting about that is the notion that we become addicted to something because it works, whether it's alcohol or cocaine or gambling or bad relationships or scrolling on our phone, it's serving a need mm-hmm. and a purpose. And cheap energy did that. It allowed us to modernize the world, right? But it works until it doesn't and right. it's not working anymore, right? And it becomes a, a function to kind of extend the addiction metaphor, like the elevator is going down, is it gonna hit the bottom or are we gonna step off before it hits the bottom? And yep. this is the story that every person who struggles with addiction has to answer for themselves. And now we're having to answer that as a global mm-hmm. society. And it's hard as somebody who loves, somebody who is struggling with addiction to see them destroying themselves, yep. to know that there is a solution to offer your hand to help and to see them refuse to take your hand. Beautifully said. And this is the scenario that we are in right now. And the solution, as you so eloquently put, cannot rest on necessarily or only the shoulders of the individuals to martyr themselves or to make sacrifices that seemingly are just a drop in the ocean, but to create the system change wherein the right choice is the convenient choice, the cost affordable choice, the accessible choice for everybody. Correct, well said. So how do we bridge that gap and get there? So the purpose of the Almanac is to begin to have the conversation to answer that question because we weren't having it. And so I have personal theories, but I'm not speaking for the Almanac team. The reason is because what we did in the Almanac, 97,000 words, built by 300 people, fact-checked completely is say, you can look up every single thing in this book, every single thing. There is no argument about any fact or table. these three digit codes Correct. for every topic heading. Right, so you go to the carbonalmanac.org and then the three numbers and it will show you everything we use to write it. If you find a mistake, we will fix it, no problem. But what do I think? I think there are just a few very simple, dramatic shifts that will change the system and put the market to work. That the reason markets have transformed the world is markets are good at finding and solving problems. They see a need. If there's a team that doesn't have a baseball bat and they need a baseball bat, someone will figure out how to sell them a baseball bat. And now the baseball bat problem goes away because the market did it, not some central government authority or some wizard. Someone says, I need something, someone sells it to them. That only works if the inputs and outputs are measured properly. So the first thing, hardest to implement in the short run, but it's already happening in countries around the world, is 
You give every single person a check for $3,000, $4,000, and you get the money for that check by pricing carbon fairly. So if you buy exactly the same amount of carbon as you used to buy, you'll probably break even. If on the other hand, you wanna take a private jet from here to London, doesn't cost $80,000, it costs $400,000. If you really wanna go, you can still go, but now we've charged you the correct price. And if you do that, all of your fellow citizens are gonna get a bigger check mm -hmm. because you decided to do that, right? So as soon as you do that, it's called a carbon dividend and border adjustment. All these different decisions get made. You know those yoga mats you bought? The yoga mats aren't gonna come wrapped in a plastic bag anymore because plastic bags are cheap in the old days. Now plastic bags are expensive as they should be and they come wrapped in paper. But if you wanna buy the plastic bag, you can, but why would you? Because it's not convenient. And so it starts to ripple through the economy really fast. The government doesn't touch any of the money. And what you end up with is corporations, which run so much of our economy, making smart decisions and consumers, which run the rest of our economy, making smart decisions. Mm -hmm. so that's the first part. And the second part, which surprises a lot of people is way more than 20% of our problem, maybe 35% of our problem is cows. There are a billion cows on this planet. And it is very hard for me, other than the cost of change, to understand why anybody would say, we should have any cows on this planet. Most people on earth don't eat things that come from cows. And if everyone did eat the way we eat in the United States, just the physics of it, we would need a whole other planet just to hold the cows. So clearly that's not gonna happen because we don't have another planet. So with that said, the path forward is pretty clear. The systems that built this now that I just described would get rid of 70 to 80% of the problem. Mm. If someone can figure out how to make fusion power work, that would help an enormous amount. And what's not helping is greenwashing. What's not helping is people doing performative stuff that makes them feel like they're making a difference, like recycling their plastic water bottles, which doesn't work, which was invented by the plastics industry and they know it doesn't work. When you start doing those things, you're giving yourself solace for one day, but you're spitting on your grandchildren's Yeah, those, those are lullabies, Correct. Right? designed by vested corporate interests to make us feel like this is all uh, moving in the right direction when in fact, it's a barrier to the solution that we need. The cows thing, people are very dismissive of that. They like to make fun of it. And there's a lot of sort of intellectual gymnastics going on right now to suggest that, you know, that's really not part of the problem. In fact, we need the cows for the soil that has been so denigrated. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think, uh, moral and intellectual confusion around that. Yes, and I really don't wanna have an argument with anybody who cares about keeping beef around. I get it, that's your story, those are your feelings. You can have them, you just, asked when you look at the math, where it's coming from. Mm -hmm. There's a great book that people who want to approach this problem with an open mind should read called The Wizard and the Prophet. And what he describes in its history book, it's about two men who only met once in their life who changed the world. The wizard won the Nobel prize for feeding uh, people in Mexico, India and other places by hybridizing seed and killing the soil by creating the fertilizer industry. Because if you put enough fertilizer down, and until you can grow a lot more crops in the short run. He fed a billion people doing that. It's hard to be against feeding a billion people. The prophet invented the modern environmental movement 
and said, we have exceeded the earth's carrying capacity. We need less people and we need less of a footprint. So their whole lives were woven back and forth. They just kept missing each other. Mm -hmm. And the wizard was right and the prophet was right. They're both right and they're both wrong. That the way forward is to understand how we're gonna use technology to create the conditions for carbon to get back in the topsoil. How are we also going to tread lightly and put in, uh, you know, whether it's LED lights or um, family planning so that we don't have 20 billion people on the planet because we can't have 20 billion people on the planet, no matter how you do the math. So it's complicated. And the people who don't want us to change will make it more complicated. And this is the, I, like the thing I really wanna focus on because a lot of people listen to you and some of them will be swayed by people who want the status quo to stay where it is. Mm-hmm. So the easiest way to do it is, I need to persuade you not to get near beef because blah, 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 blah. And there's just like a lot of math and stuff. And it's easy to say, okay, fine. And then this person says, well, how will we live a life without plastic? And so we just need to be alert to the fact that we can argue about this all day, but the earth is getting warmer every single day and a melted ice cap never gets unmelted. Sure. And the wait and see approach, let's just sit on the sidelines and don't worry about recycling because we know that doesn't work anyway. And somebody's gonna innovate our way out of this is another form of lullaby, right? Like we do have to shoulder our own personal responsibility for this and make the conscious choices that we can. It's incumbent upon us. It's part of our responsibility towards living in this society and borrowing the planet from our grandchildren and the generations to come. And I think what what is incredibly frustrating about all of this is that we already have the solutions. Like, yes, we need innovation, but actually we already have enough innovation to solve all of this. Mm-hmm. Like, and more than half of this book is solutions. Like I think, you know, maybe 30% into the book, it turns to solutions and it's all about solutions. Just like, I mean, this book in, in many ways is similar to Paul Hawkins book, Regeneration. Like, yep. It's like, here are the problems and look at all these people who are already doing all these amazing things that can solve this problem. How do we onboard these people so that their technologies can get traction? How do we reconfigure the incentives such that these solution oriented innovations can get integrated? Like whether it's solar, wind and nuclear, I know there's a lot of, you know, uh, controversy and conversation around that, but like we have everything that we need now, the only thing we do need is political will, frankly, and we need grassroots will, and we need business incentives that are in line and see the short and long-term benefits for investing in these things. Correct. What you just described is a marketing problem. That's why it fits in with my work. We have a marketing problem. That if you tell an investor, you tell a CEO, you tell a congressperson a story that's true, that resonates, that's to their advantage, they will use it. They will move in that direction. We have done a bad job because of the wizard profit confusion of letting the status quo persist because their stories are better mm-hmm. because they got really good at it. So Ogilvy, uh, the famous ad agency, invented the term carbon footprint and their client was British Petroleum. It's one of the great marketing campaigns of all time. Because if you are worried about your carbon footprint, you feel like a hypocrite. If you feel like a hypocrite, you're not gonna talk about it. Mm. Yeah, that's super interesting. The Exxon memo, like Mm -hmm. I flagged it in here. It's like on page 46 I can't wait till they sue us. It would be great. I mean, 
first of all, so, all right, there's in the book, you have a photocopy of a memo from Exxon dated November 12th, 1982, in which Exxon proceeds to basically describe the very problem that we're experiencing right now in 1982. And they got to a, to a How degree- How did you get this memo? They predicted exactly what the climate would be like today in that memo. Mm-hmm. And the great cartoonist, uh, Randall Monroe linked to it in one of his XKCD cartoons. So that's how I found it. I don't know how it Where leaked it onto from. the internet, but it is an, a genuine thing. Exxon has not denied that these are their words from one of their engineers. I was wondering why it didn't, you didn't just put it like right on the page <laughs> one insert to the book at the very beginning, because it's so damning and extraordinary to read this. Yeah, I, well, we had a lot of decisions to make in five months about the book. It's easy to make a book that's filled with shame and blame and villains. Yeah. And it's also easy to make a book that's completely positive all the, I mean, what, what do you wanna do? And so the team was terrific in figuring out how to not use balance as an excuse to not mean anything, but to use it as a way to say, there is nobody you can give this to who can say, I reject this out of hand because we're not showing up to punch somebody in the face. We're showing up to say the weather in Central Park is not up for debate. This is what the weather is in Central mm-hmm. Park right now. What should we do about it is up for debate. So let's have conversations about what to do about it because the time is long gone to deny it. Explain why you felt compelled to create this book in an almanac format and and like what is, an almanac actually. It just feels like, you know, when I think of almanac, I think of like Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, he was, he was first. Um, almanacs changed my life when I was a book packager because I uh, invented the business almanac and it sold a lot of copies. It was the internet before the internet. And then we did uh, the celebrity almanac with People Magazine and I did the women's almanac. And I loved them because they matched the way my brain works even before the internet. But once the internet shows up, all anyone can deal with is an almanac, half a page at a time. Oh, look, here's a cartoon. Wait, there's a puppy. And so people way better at writing than me have written articulate books about the climate. What I could add value is by organizing a bunch of people to say, yeah, but look it up, here it Mm -hmm. is. It's not the encyclopedia, it's not school, it's an almanac. And it's got stats and graphs and charts and it's cheap and you should buy five and share them because if you hand this around the office, then tomorrow you can say, which page do you think we should discuss? Cause we gotta discuss something. Mm-hmm. Part of the kind of cultural battle that we're waging right now is one between liberty and responsibility mm-hmm. and liberty is winning. There is something very American ingrained in our DNA as citizens of this country that over indexes on liberty. And we've seen the flare ups politically and culturally around that right now. And what we're not valuing to the extent that is you know, necessary right now is the counterbalance to liberty, which is responsibility. Mm-hmm. This is something that was kind of understood in prior generations when World War II happened, sure. et cetera. And I feel like that is lost mm-hmm. right now in the conversation and in the kind of approach that we have towards how we feel about this country that we live in and this planet that we're sharing. So how do we restore 
a, a return or at least a, a, a call back to feeling a shared sense of communal responsibility because ultimately, you know, this is what the almanac is saying. It's like, yes, we need system change, but we also need individual responsibility and change. Yeah, this is, um, I wish I had a glib answer. I will tell you a couple of interesting things about going to some of the poorest places on earth. I've worked with uh, Acumen for more than 20 years. Jacqueline is one of my heroes. She's unbelievable. She's a, a very special person. Um, they have now helped 200 million people around the world who are the poorest people in the world to make $3 a day. Mm -hmm start to move their way out of poverty. But one of the things you notice when you're in one of those places is no one's on a weird diet because you don't have that much food anyway. You have to have a lot of food available. You have to have a whole foods down the street before you can say, no, I only eat collagen from left-handed animals or whatever it is, right? And the other thing that goes on is there's an enormous amount of freedom from government intervention in places like this. You don't have to pay any taxes and there's nobody from the government who's gonna come tell you what to do. And yet, most people wouldn't wanna live there given the choice because the creature comforts, the civilization that we have come to expect is important and it's so easy to take for granted. So liberty is a fascinating term because liberty requires civil society for it to be worth anything whatsoever. So I think we have to be careful making sure that the dichotomy is in between liberty and responsibility. Cause I think you can't have liberty unless you have responsibility. That's sort mm -hmm. of its definition. With that said, there are long histories of shocks to the system that lead to changes in the culture. And you know, the Beatles were a shock to the system that aided by technology changed the culture. And I think we are facing now a massive shock to the system that the fact is that you know, I don't know what the expression is. There's no atheist in a foxhole. That when your house is flooded, you start to think a little bit differently about whether we should be doing something about whether it's going to get flooded again. Mm -hmm. And like I learned in the current, you can't really easily fight the current of the Pacific Ocean, and you can't really easily fight the weather. Fighting the weather is really expensive, and I think it's going to cause a shift in our culture but those problems are academic and obscure until you find yourself mired in them, Correct. right? And the human animal is not wired very well to contend with future problems that Correct. are not experiential in the moment. Right, so it's happening and it's gonna, the next year is gonna be so much worse than last year. We still have 10 years to take dramatic action. And my hunch is that we're gonna soon hit a point where it's obvious and where it's enough. Hmm. Enough for people to say, oh, not that I was wrong, based on what I knew then I was right, but now I'm gonna make a new decision based on new information and this is what we should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a quote in the book, convenience is all destination and no journey. And a lot of these problems, at least from our experiential perspective are the result of overabundance and convenience mm -hmm. where we're not contending with real problems that are being visited upon us now. And as such, we have to focus on trivialities, right? Yeah. And the threat of our conveniences being taken away from us is really, you know, monopolizing our focus instead of allowing us to focus on the real problems. Yeah, and I think the grownups who are listening to us today are aware enough that they ought to be able to say, there's a difference between your feelings and the way things are, almost always. 
Where we get into trouble is when we insist that the way things are have to match our feelings. Cause we mm-hmm. always start with our feelings. You're entitled to your own feelings. You're not entitled to your own science. And as somebody who understands deeply how ideas spread, what is your sense of, you know, beyond the almanac and the resources, et cetera. And for this movement as a whole, what is something we could all think about and practice that could help these ideas spread? So I've been studying how ideas spread longer than most people and I still don't understand. I'm pretty good at being able to point to something and say, yeah, that one's gonna work. And sometimes I'm right, but then things come out of the blue and totally don't make any sense until after the fact, Mm -hmm. right? And I don't know what the dynamic is gonna be that causes this one to give people the status roles, the affiliation, the energy to make it easy to spread. It will, because the same way the internet did, right? That people didn't know that email was gonna be the killer app. They didn't know that chat was gonna be the killer app. They didn't know that Facebook was gonna work when Friendster didn't. But then something happens and it's a very complicated formula, but there is something happens. And, and it's it happens happening quickly. It sometimes it happens yeah. quickly, sometimes it takes longer, but this is happening now. A year ago when I started this, people gave me a funny look and now it's like, oh, of course. It, and that happened, not just in New York, that happened with people who I know in Perth and people I know in Johannesburg mm-hmm. and people I know in Bangalore. It's on the radar and it's not a fad. Why don't we have some kind of Manhattan project under, maybe we do, I don't, that I don't know about, but how come we don't have the brightest people in the world convening regularly to solve this problem at the highest level? Well, because we get confused about what the highest level means. The highest level for war has always been Dr. Strangelove in the Pentagon. But the highest level for the kind of technological cultural change we're talking about has always been privately funded entities. And the internet took off when 20 people on Sand Hill Road decided it was the best investment they ever saw. And I was there. And if you had a notion, it became an idea. And then the next day it was a business and then you had the resources to share it. Mm-hmm. And what I am seeing, I, one of the reasons I'm out here is I spoke at a, a Regen conference, a VC fund that only funds companies that are working on this problem. That then the first trillionaire is gonna be somebody who comes up with a really substantial impact on this problem. So that's not enough because we need the carbon border adjustment and dividend. We need all the stuff that the people we elect can do, but they always follow, they never lead. And so they're gonna follow us if we show up enough times, if the first, second and third question, anyone running for any office gets asked is about the climate. Not true yet, but it's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. And they ultimately need to be responsive to the people who are gonna send them money or send them votes. And that's gonna happen when we speak up. So yeah, there is the number of brilliant people who are working on say fusion, it's 10 times what it was 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah, and the money, should get funneled into the innovators who are making that correct conscious choice be not just the, the easy choice and the, the affordable choice, but also the sexy choice, right? Like I love how on the website for this, the first thing in terms of like a call to action for anybody who's visiting is switch your, your browser to this Ecosia. And for every 45 searches, 
they plant a tree and they've planted, I don't know how, like a lot of trees, millions right? And millions Which and millions. is like, I never had heard of that. What a great idea, it's so cool. There's no friction to making that switch. It's very easy and you can be part of the solution and yeah. it's cool and you feel better about yeah. doing your searches Exactly, online. your status goes up, there are no ads, it's more convenient. And if everybody switched, it would be the equivalent of taking, I don't remember the number, a lot of cars off the road. Uh-huh. It's a very significant thing. It's not the answer to the problem, but what's really interesting is the resistance some people have to switching. And I got one email talking about placebos. This person said, I used to use Bing. I switched to Ecosia because I like your blog, mm-hmm. but I'm switching back because Bing has different, better results. And I wrote to them and I said, did you know that Ecosia is powered by Bing and the results are exactly the same? <laughs> and you know, you never hear back from people like that. But uh-huh. the point is we tell ourselves a story. Right. And what's happening is once you start telling yourself the story of I am going to make these shifts, you can't start untelling yourself that mm-hmm. story because there's so much momentum. The same way in 1995, a whole bunch of people said this internet thing's never gonna amount to anything. But some people got an email address and then some people got a GeoCities page and, then, and it unravels or ravels forward. And so I'm guardedly optimistic. Human beings can screw up just about anything. Human beings are capable of being really cruel and short-term thinkers. But a lot of people of privilege don't wanna have privilege in a world that's not worth living in. And they're starting to show up either because they're gonna make more money or because they wanna undo some of the damage that mm-hmm. their privilege caused. In the, the journey of compiling all of this and working with all of these experts and researchers, what was the most surprising fact or truth that was uncovered as somebody who already was steeped in this science? Um, I would say the most stunning is, the carb- is that plastic recycling is a fraud, intentionally invented to trick us. It is chemically impossible to have blue bins filled with plastic be recycled. And almost everywhere, they're just put in the incinerator and all you've done is make the incineration more efficient. And said that baldly, people are sort of amazed. And then the next day they will still put plastic in the blue bin. Mm-hmm. So that, no, no blue bins at the, at the Godin household. Well, in half the Godin household, yeah. there are blue bins. And then the other one that just a surprising trivial fact, concrete is 8% of the problem. Right. Blew me away. Yeah, you have those like four C's at the beginning of the book. Yeah, Yeah. I had no idea. I thought that was a fairly benign thing. Concrete is cement heated to more than 2000 degrees by coal usually uh, to make concrete. And so we got all these coal plants that are belching carbon into the air. It's like crack cocaine for the atmosphere so that we can make more concrete. They've, and the good news is- There's incredible innovation in it. that space. Yeah. yeah, like there's all these new uh, building materials that are actually better, yeah. lighter, more structurally sound right. that obviate the concrete problem. And as soon as we start yeah. charging the right price for coal, it will just happen instantly. But right now, right. there are still entities that say, yeah, but it's cheaper to do it the old way. Um, Robert Downey Jr. just built this new house and it made the newspaper out here, it made the news. And it's like, I don't know what the name of the, the building materials are, but it's, it's kind of like this curved structure. It's very kind of Flintstone-y meets the modern age kind mm-hmm. of thing. But apparently there's something about it. I should know more if I'm gonna talk about it. I don't know that much about it, but my friend Darren is also using the same materials to build a home right now as well. Uh, and it it's completely, carbon neutral, 
And we don't think of our building, we know about lead and green buildings and all of that, but it's not immediately obvious like why building a building would be a problem. Yeah, so here's a great systems example. In my little town, leaf blowers are against the law six months of the year. And the reason is one hour of using a leaf blower puts out as much carbon as driving a Toyota Camry from LA to New York. That's nuts. But true. And they're noisy and they're not good for the people who are using them. So systems idea number one, it only took 20 people in my town to get them banned. Pretty easy to get a ban like that passed because people can get an electric leaf blower. It's no yeah. big deal. Number two, the lawn contractors in my town persist in forcing their underpaid, under-respected workers to use gas leaf blowers. They just like either don't pay the tickets or they pay the tickets. It's more convenient to keep doing it the old way. And if it's this hard to change leaf blowers when it's so obvious about their problems and so easy to replace it with something that's quieter, better and more efficient, you can see the scale of our systems problem. Mm -hmm. And the way we solve it is by saying, guess what? If you're a contractor in town and you get three tickets, you don't have a permit anymore. And then in one day, all the gas leaf blowers would be gone. Yeah. Well, if we care, if you're listening to this and you care, figure out how to get that law passed in your little town. Once enough little towns pass the law, they'll stop making gas leaf blowers mm-hmm. and we will move on to the next thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's back to incentives, Yep. right? Same with like solar on our homes. If we had better incentives, more people would grapple with that and figure it out. Yeah, and no one wants to go back, mm-hmm. right? Nobody says, oh, my house is filled with beautiful LED light. I'm ripping it out and putting in incandescence. And nobody says, oh, I'm getting reliable solar power off the grid. I wish I could plug back into the coal plant down the street. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear that we have figured out a path. They're gonna have test tube meat soon. So if that's your thing, you can eat real hamburger all you want, right? But first we gotta have forward motion and systemic change, which comes from talking about it. And it's a, it's, there's a ticking clock. That's the other thing. There is indeed. You know, so in the, you know, Robert McKee screenplay, like where are we, are we nearing like the bottom of the second act right now? Like, where do we find ourselves on the the doomsday timeline? Yeah, no, we've, the inciting incident has already come and gone. Right, well, that was, that's page 10. Yeah, exactly. So we're well past that. Exactly. You know, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that we're all gonna die. Americans don't like to acknowledge this, but we're all gonna die. So you're either gonna die in 10 years or 50 years or hundred years, but we're all gonna die. So how do we live a life that we're proud of along the way? And rather than handicapping, how bad is the earth gonna be in 10 years or 15 years? I think what we have is the chance to shift our time frame and to say, if we're lucky enough to have all of the bountiful benefits that technology has given us. And we've got food on the table and a roof over our head. Isn't our obligation to just respond to that by making our time zone, our time horizon at least a couple weeks longer as opposed to just what's on TV tonight? 100%, 100%. Enrollment is a big theme mm-hmm. for you, right? Yes. And it seems like enrollment is germane and pertinent to this issue. So maybe we can kind of end this with some thoughts about enrollment and how to get people more actively engaged. So enrollment is another word that's easily confused because you enroll your kid in school because you have to. 
That's not what I'm talking about. If you're a bus driver and your bus goes from here to Santa Fe, it doesn't pay for you to go up and down the streets trying to persuade people that they should go to Santa Fe, right? That if somebody really wants to go to Bakersfield, they should get on a different bus. Your bus goes to Santa Fe. And we don't need a unanimous vote here on almost any marketing plan, but including the one about our planet. All we need to do is be able to find the people who wanna go to Santa Fe, who are enrolled in the journey, organize them, connect them and amplify them. There's already enough that you can change the constitution of the United States without a vote. If you build a nonprofit that sticks with their idea for 40 years, 40 years of sticking with it and sticking with it, then you get your justices and you win. Mm -hmm. It's not, what's the crisis of today? It's not about being a slacktivist. It's, this is the bus we're on. And so it's not gonna take 40 years. What we need to do is shun the non-believers and say to people, oh, okay, not for you but it is for these people, these people you respect, these people you wanna be friends with, these people who are leading, they're all getting on this bus and the bus is going this way, here we go. Mm -hmm. And if someone wants to get off the bus, they can get off the bus because we can't force them. But what marketing is in this day and age is not that you have one third of the channels, viewers tuned to your channel. What it is, is that you incrementally build how many people are on the bus and you connect them to each other and then you amplify their work and you empower the leaders. Correct. And the leaders need to carry themselves with a certain level of responsibility mixed with charisma and something about them that is aspirational that makes people wanna get on board. That's right. And the good news is you don't need one leader because it's not an election. All, shape, all shapes and forms. Exactly. You don't like Greta? We got Seth right over here. Well, I do not belong <laughs> in the same sentence as yeah. her. Well, I commend you for this really important work. It's really a beautiful act of service. Thank you. You are a genius teacher. Uh, I aspire to your level of clarity in thought and your precision with language. Uh, it is the high watermark for me. And I have so much respect for everything that you're about, the extent to which you make yourself available as, as a teacher, as a mentor, as a... Um, as somebody who is a creator who thinks deeply about what the right thing to do is and tries to make the world a little bit of a better place. That is yeah. your promise to the people that care about what you do. And I think you're fulfilling in that promise. And I'm staring at this outline that's like 20 pages long and we got to about 10% <laughs> of that. Um, so I hope that we can continue this, was such this a conversation. Joy. Yeah. I can't wait to do it again. Maybe we'll have to do it by Zoom if that's okay, but, uh, but a pleasure. No, I think I just have to go up to HOH. Okay, we'll, 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 we'll go do, out we'll in the canoe. That. In the meantime, uh, I would also encourage people to check out the series of podcasts that you have done with both Tim Ferriss and Brian Koppelman. Those are all wonderful and we'll provide you with a background until we reconvene. And there's a hundred and You've done 200 episodes of, of Akimbo yeah. with no guests. Right, it's just right. me prattling on. And it's really, yeah, we didn't even talk about your podcast that was in the outline, but I've been enjoying that. It's very different from most podcasts out there. They're sort of little like sort of mini blog uh, rants and thoughts and truths mixed in and it's very entertaining. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. This was it, so such a pleasure. Thank well, you for having so me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Seth. Cheers. Peace. Plants. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. 
I truly hope you enjoyed the conversation. To learn more about today's guest, including links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the episode page at richroll.com where you can find the entire podcast archive, as well as podcast merch, my books, Finding Ultra, Voicing Change in the Plant Power Way, as well as the Plant Power Meal Planner at meals.richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube and leave a review and or comment. Supporting the sponsors who support the show is also important and appreciated. And sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course, awesome and very helpful. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, please subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page at richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo with additional audio engineering by Kale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davy Greenberg, graphic and social media assets courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and AJ Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants, namaste. <laughs>